You know, there's, there's a lot of places that you can look around and you can see insecurity. Uh, just yesterday, I was having a conversation in, in our kitchen uh, with my mother-in-law, and we were talking about, you know, just how, how blessed I am at the community that God has built here with, with um, just with you guys. It's so special. But how it's sad that among certain spiritual environments, there can be this like pressure cooker mentality that you're always worried that, you know, maybe I'm not going to like meet someone else's expectation. And then as soon as I don't meet their expectation of what my spirituality should look like, then I'm out. Or I'm dismissed. I'm viewed as nothing or, or, or at least just less than. And I'm always trying to, to match up with whatever the unseen and unsaid expectation is. And in the middle of those environments, like you're, you'd never truly, you, you never really find the footing to actually begin to grow. And it's sad that we put these weird expectations on one another. That's why I always say when we're doing, whenever I'm doing premarital counseling, I always have three points. One of them is always um, honor the Lord, then honor your spouse, and the last one is don't take yourself too seriously. Like, take God seriously. Take, take your wife or your husband or even the spiritual community, take people around you, take them seriously. But as soon as you start to like, you know, take yourself seriously, you get to this point where you're like, I am the barometer of spirituality, and therefore, if you don't meet my expectations, and you how we are, right? We give ourselves a pass, and we hold it hard on someone else, right? Like, what we do, we call it stretching the truth, but they're just a liar, you know? Like, we, we give everybody else the, the heavy hand, but we make room for ourselves. And it's just a sad environment. You know where you can find a lot of insecurities? You can find them at pastor's conferences. So many insecurities. Because you find a bunch of men that got into ministry because they love the Lord. And they felt like the Lord was calling them. And then they get around a bunch of other pastors. And then it's almost as if they need to prove that they belong there. They got to validate. And the conversation sadly goes to, well, how many people you got showing up? How much money you got coming in? Uh, tell me about your building projects. And these subject matters that we use as like, you know, like, like signposts to say, I belong. I belong here. And, and that's a sad thing. Why do we get like that? Why do we think that, you know, attendance or account or, you know, building projects are like the metrics of success? And they try to like, you try to justify that you belong. Instead of just looking to the Lord and be like, I'm here, God, because you put me here. I'm telling you, that's a better way. So much more freeing. Um, the fear of man is a snare. You know where else you find insecurities? You find them in men's retreats. You get a bunch of men that are trying to compare themselves to one another. Again, don't do that. When you start to try to do that, it's not wise. Just keep your eyes on the Lord. You know where you find insecurities? You find them in church. But I want to encourage you that you would just take all of your insecurities and you cast them on the Lord. That you would recognize that like all of us together have fallen short. And that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us and Christ died for us. 
and that Christ is doing a work in you, and he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it, and then just take all the pressure of everybody else off and just start walking with Jesus. Now, with that, in the middle of these insecurities, when we start feeling like we need to validate ourselves, there's things that we look to like, like timetables. Like, why isn't this thing happening in my life faster than what I anticipated? You know, you think of singles and you're like, I wasn't expecting to stay single this long. Why haven't I found the one? You think of people that are like trying to start their career and you're like, I'm trying so hard. Why is it taking this long for, it to, for me to actually, you know, get a toehold and move forward? And there's all these different things that we look to and then we're trying to validate ourselves between each other instead of looking to the Lord. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning in this passage that we're looking at. We need to rest in the Lord and we need to rest in his timing. And with that in mind, let's look in John chapter 7. I know it's going to say verse 1 and 2, but I mean 1 through 5. So ready? Oops. So just flip that 2 upside down and turn it around and it'll be like a weird 5. Here we go. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because of the Jews, or because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So we see three key details that I'd like to draw your attention to right out of the gate. The first one is, is that the Jews, they sought to kill him. The second one is, is that his brothers did not believe in him. And the third one is, is that the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So the Jews sought to kill him, his brothers didn't believe in him, and the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. So the, the Jews sought to kill him. Um, Jesus had been creating quite a stir. And that's exactly what you could expect to happen when for so long the religious leaders had been dishing out some cheap knockoff of true spirituality. Like they had a form of godliness, but they were denying the power of godliness. In fact, they became so devoted to their traditions that they neglected the Lord himself. And that's what we've been seeing all through the Gospels. Now here comes the real thing. And the difference is obvious. Actually, the difference for the religious leaders was embarrassing. Because when Jesus showed up, they were losing their grip on the hearts and minds of the people. Remember, Jesus spoke with authority, and then that little addition, not like the scribes and Pharisees. You know, like that addition is so embarrassing to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. Jesus comes in with authority, not like our religious leaders. <laughs> not those guys. They don't have anything. Jesus showed that he had authority over sickness by healing so many, and everywhere he went, it was evident. Jesus showed that he had authority over the spiritual realm by casting out demons and those who were out of their mind insane that they were in their right mind again because he had touched them and healed them. 
Jesus had authority over the physical world by rebuking storms we see it evidenced. He had authority on earth to forgive sin. He had the authority. Why? Because he was the promised king of Israel. He was the king of heaven who we learned last week had come down from heaven. But they had no room in their hearts to receive their king. Like when he said that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 there in the synagogue of Nazareth. And it tells us there in Luke 4, 28 and 29. So all those things, or so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him over the, uh, they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. They're trying to kill him. He's like, I, like, I'm the king of Israel. My signs and wonders are showing you that it's true. And they're like, no, off the cliff. When he told the paralytic man that his sins were forgiven in Matthew 9, 2 and 3, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the, the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Even though he backed up the statement, your sins are forgiven, by telling the man to get up and walk. Or later, when he said that he is the one who transcends space and time, the eternal one. I'm so excited to get to John 8. It's one of my favorite passages. John 8, 59, or 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He's not saying, like, I'm older than Abraham. He's saying before Abraham was, I am. Like, I am there now. I transcend space and time. The only one who is outside of time is the creator, and all creation is now affected by time. But I'm there. And then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They're enraged. They keep trying to kill him. Or when he asserts his essential unity with the Father in John 10, 30 through 33. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Here in the Gospel of John, the plotting to kill Jesus began in John chapter 5. It began in Judea. Remember the man who had spent so long just sitting there at the pool of Bethesda, stewing in his own stench because he couldn't care for himself and in his own thoughts as well, just thinking back who through the last 38 years of his life was stuck in that condition because of some sin in his life? Remember, Jesus said, you know, see that you don't sin anymore, that something worse happens to you. Wishing things were different, hoping in a legend, unable to reasonably imagine that change was possible. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus in John 5, verse 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. He healed the man. He told the man to take up his bed and walk. John 5, 16, 
For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What things? There was a man who couldn't walk, and Jesus told him to take up his mat and walk. And because he had done that, now this man can walk freely in Judea. But Jesus, it says, did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. It's as if he took that man's situation and when he set that man free, that suddenly the, you know, the penalty of the society was against him. Now this man can walk freely and Jesus can't because they want to kill him. So the Jews want to kill him in Judea. Remember the Gospel of John? All the synoptic Gospels, they focus primarily on Jesus and his ministry in the Galilee. With the exception of the Passion Week, which takes place in Jerusalem. But the Gospel of John, with the exception of the wedding at Cana of Galilee and the Samaritan woman um, by the well, and then also uh, what we just read in John 6, there in Tiberias, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Everything else takes place in Jerusalem, in Judea. The place where the Jews want to kill him. The other thing that we see is that his brothers didn't believe in him. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is the book of James. I think one of the reasons I like the book of James is because he just, like, slaps you with what he wants to tell you. Like, hey, <laughs> oh, there, there's no beating around the bush in the book of James. But who was James? And you look at James 1.1, he introduces himself simply as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. But who was he? His identity, it, it might seem a little bit shocking, but... He's the same James that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, who was called a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. He's the same one that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, where he says, But other of the apostles I saw none, save James, the Lord's brother. The Lord's brother? And now here in John 7, verse 5, for his brothers did not believe in him. Now there are those that would hold to what is called um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. That after she gave birth to Jesus, that she remained a virgin until she died. And I'll tell you, good people believe this. But when I'm looking at the scripture it seems as if she went on to live a normal life and have a normal marriage. In fact, she went on to have what 1 Corinthians 7 would describe as a biblical marriage because a marriage without intimacy is not a biblical marriage. From the very beginning, that this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Like that's, that's part of marriage.
It tells us in Matthew 13, verse 54 through 57. And we, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Again, like the contrast, you know why the Jews want to kill him now. Um, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So you have, they're like, we know his mom, we know his dad, we know his brothers. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. His brothers did not believe in him. This unbelief from his own household, by the way, is is a messianic prophecy. If you read Psalm 69, Psalm 69 is a prophecy of the Messiah. And Psalm 69 verse 8 says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Like just the fact that his family didn't believe in him is a fulfillment of prophecy. So again, it seems that Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, had a normal marriage. They had a bunch of kids. So Jesus would have half-brothers. And I would say half-brothers because Joseph had nothing to do with the conception of Jesus. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and that thing which was conceived in her was of the power of the highest. Right? I mean, I said, when you say, don't say that thing, I'm just using the language that the Bible uses, right? That's what it reads in King James anyway. Ah. So James and Jesus' other half-brothers and sisters didn't believe in him at first. In fact, here in John 7, they're mocking him. I will say this, though, that changed. In the book of Acts, we find them in the upper room with the believers praying. Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What caused the change? I believe the change happened at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. I believe the the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changed him forever to where he became such a devoted man of prayer that Fox's Book of Martyrs describes him as having knees like a camel because he was always praying, interceding for his own countrymen. James, the half-brother of Jesus, witness of the resurrection, became a pillar of the church. He was a leader of the church of Jerusalem. In fact, um, a few weeks ago when we had John and Tiffany out from from Jerusalem, when we were there with them, we went out one night after all the people on the the tour were too tired, and we went out and kind of hit the town. And as you're hitting the town, um, he's like, come on, I'll show you something really cool. So we went outside of the Temple Mount, and uh, I mean, outside of the old city Jerusalem, just on the edge of it. And as we started walking along, we found in the middle of like, it was just pitch black. There was all these like pine looking trees around, but pitch black. And it was caged off with this blue metal cage. We had our flashlights from our phones and we're looking in. And he's like, okay, so this, this is an ancient mikvah. 
And mikvah, it's like a um, mikvot, it's like a, a Jewish ceremonial bath that they would use before any of their, their uh, rituals. So they would walk in this mikvot, and then they would, walk, they would walk through the water, and then they'd walk up the steps another way, and it was like part of their cleansing. But this mikvot was pretty big underneath. And he's like, this, when they found this one originally, it had all kinds of Christian, um, you know, like inscriptions all over the walls that dated back to that very first century. He's like, it's, it's thought that this was where the first Christian church met in Jerusalem. We're like, what? This is amazing. We're here. Like, what could possibly have been? And then all of a sudden, we hear this voice. What are you doing? And it's this Orthodox Jew, all dressed up in black, came sneaking up like a, you know, a ninja, right? His beard and his hat and his big old jacket, you know, like, can't see the guy. And we're like, we're just checking this thing out. He's like, why are you even here? Our rabbis tell us we're not allowed to go near this thing. I'm like, well, it's really significant. He's like, yeah, like, like I don't know why you're allowed. We're, we're, we're forbidden to come over here. So even among their culture right now, in their, their rabbinical schools, they say, you stay away from where the Christian church started in Jerusalem. Pretty amazing. We're like, what? James probably preached some sermons down here. He might have like originally preached some of his text from the book of James from right down in there. It was pretty amazing. But just to think of the way that all of that changed in his life. A leader in the church in Jerusalem martyred AD 62 by being thrown down from the Temple Mount and then beaten with clubs. And all that happened while he's praying, Father, forgive him. Could you imagine though? Could you imagine growing up with Jesus? Could you imagine the sibling rivalry? Why can't you be more like your brother? Well, actually, that's a very deep theological answer, Mom. <laughs> See, there's this thing called the hypostatic union. And like, uh, I'm not theandric. Nonetheless, you know, we see that in our own family. Our kids, they try to you know, play off of each other's personalities and use each other's personalities as excuses for things. But these guys, they grew up with Jesus. They played with him in the streets. And it took the resurrection for them to actually believe in him. Why didn't they believe in him from the very beginning while they're seeing his miracles? Well, the miracles were new. The only thing you have recorded of Jesus is that at 12 years old at the temple, Listening to the, the, those that study the law, he's answering their questions and asking them things, and they're amazed at his understanding. But why don't they believe? I believe it's, a, it, it's like what we saw in John 6. They were blinded by their familiarity. And it's often said that familiarity breeds contempt. You can become so familiar with something that you don't even see how amazing it is. Like some of you kids, before you go off to college, you're like, mom's food. And then you go to college and you're like, mom's food. Oh, if only I could have the mom's food. But that familiarity, 
It hindered so many who knew Jesus from childhood. It's a problem that Jesus said was common among prophets. John 4.44, for, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. And there's a warning in that for us today. Because look, you might have been hearing about Jesus for a long time. You might have been hearing about Jesus since you were small. But that doesn't mean you're trusting in him. You, just because you know of him doesn't mean you know him. Just because you know that Jesus saves doesn't mean that you're saved. So don't let your familiarity blind you to the truth. Don't let it make you think that like, well, because I'm sort of familiar with this, I guess I'm okay. Be careful of that. So the Jews want to kill him. His brothers don't believe in him. But there's that other thing. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. This was one of the great pilgrimage feasts of Israel. One of three in which no matter what part of the country you were from, you would leave what you were doing and you would go up to Jerusalem. You would be there for the feast and during this festival. And it was in, in remembrance of the good things that God had done. It occurred, this one occurred early October. And during the feast, they would build booths out of branches or sticks or whatever they could find and make these little makeshift booths or shacks for them to live in. Even if you lived in Jerusalem, you would move out of your house and you would stay in a little shack that you made. And it would last a week. So could you imagine that your religion mandated you to camp for a week? I'm telling you, when I said that first service, my wife was like, yes. Camping for God. It's perfect. But there was a lesson. It was to remind them for the, that for 40 years they wandered as pilgrims in the wilderness. That for 40 years they lived in tents. What was the lesson of the wilderness wanderings? That time when God led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? Where God himself fed them with manna, even though they didn't understand it? They didn't even know what it was? That time where their sandals didn't even wear out for 40 years. Could you imagine having a pair of, uh, of slippers that last 40 years? You frame those things. He did so many things over those 40 years. Through a stretch of land that could have been crossed from the Red Sea to the border of Kadesh Barnea, you could cross that in 12 days. In that little chunk of land, they wandered around for 40 years when you could get across it in 12 days. Now, I know some of you have been late getting to where you wanted to go because of traffic. But if you ever were like scheduled to be in a meeting and you show up 40 years later and say, traffic, <laughs> it's not going to work. 40 years, like, yeah, my flight was delayed. <laughs> like, not like that it wasn't. Like, did your, did your airline go out of business? Like, what, what happened? 40 years. But the lesson is this, that 
sometimes the way that God's leading you isn't going to make good practical sense. And sometimes God will want you to take the long way around. What we're reading here is six months after what we read in John chapter 6 because it's, um, you know, Tabernacles is six months after Passover and John 6 was the season of Passover. And what we're reading here begins the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so wait, you're in John chapter 7, and this is the last six months? So you can see that the Gospel of John is emphasizing heavily on the cross. That's the glory that John is um, portraying for us. He'll go to Jerusalem in this chapter, and then in the next, the next time he makes that ascent, it's going to be to suffer and die for the sin of the world. So okay, with those three points, the Jews want to kill him, his brothers don't believe in him, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Look again in verse 3 through 5. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. What are they saying? They're saying, go to the public. Get that exposure. Use the marketing. Push the media. Go and use those tools that we often see the world use because those tools will get you an audience. And an audience is definitely the metrics of success. And I'm telling you, men, we struggle to prove ourselves. We feel like we have to prove ourselves. We have to validate ourselves. And we use these metrics to validate ourselves that are put upon us by the world. It was one of the ways that Jesus was tempted of the devil in Luke 4. If you're the son of God, prove it. Show us. And we're going to be tempted by it as well. It has a big word, a big name, and that word is pragmatism. This week I heard about a church here in, on the island that's struggling. And in the middle of their struggling, the pastor is proclaiming, we need to reinvent how we do church. Because the people today are different, and we need to reach a different people. I like what Leonard Ravenhill said when he said, the world out there is not waiting for a new definition of Christianity. It is waiting for a new demonstration of Christianity. Like if Christians would just start being Christians again, I think then we would like start to see some action. Like Bible teaching and Bible preaching is slowly going away. In fact, I even see it among my own brothers in, of Calvary Chapel where we put out these banners that say, reviving the systematic teaching of God's word. And then you go to the church and they read a passage and then they just tell stories the whole rest of the time. You're like, that was teaching? That sounded like story time with some rambling and reading. That wasn't a, you didn't exposit anything. We see it all over the place. 
It's being exchanged for pep talks. Like I mentioned last week, um, meology is taking the place of theology. And so, self-help and comedy, changing the sanctuary to look like a comedy club, light shows and music, and then I, I, I'm, part of this, I'm part of this Facebook page called Gear Talk Praise and Worship. And it's been like pretty helpful because they talk about like, you know, new electronics that are out there, uh, new things that they've been using that are helpful. Sometimes they talk about some new songs that are out there that are pretty cool. And so there's some good dialogue, but there's also a lot of shocking dialogue in there. Because you find within this Gear Talk Praise and Worship that there is a large portion of those people that are not believers at all. And that to them, it's simply a gig that they have been hired by churches because churches think, you know what we need to draw the crowd is we need a jamming band. And if we get the jamming band and we can like push it and make it feel so emotional and people will be like, yes, those emotions are Jesus. But I'll tell you, man, people get emotional for Taylor Swift. And that is anything but Jesus. And man, that girl can draw a crowd, but that's not the things that God's looking at. And now, like, look, I don't want to say that just because they're not believers that they can't glorify God. That might trip you out a little bit. But look, when an atheist uses his breath to say there's no God, that, word, that sentence that he gets out is vibrating through vocal cords that God's gave him, that the Lord gave him, in lungs that God gave him, with life that God gave him, and an intellect that God, every single thing that he's using for that statement that doesn't glorify God, all that glorifies God. So that guy is so frustrated that even when he's trying to not glorify God, he's still glorifying God because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And it's great to have a big old God that even when people are trying to mock him, you're like, you realize that you're glorifying him right now, right? Because you exist and you have that not of yourself, but God gave that to you. So there's some aspects where you're like, cool, like I was telling Starlet yesterday. If an atheist grew a garden in their backyard, I wouldn't go to their house and be like, it's a shame that it's happening in the backyard of an atheist. I'd be like, praise God for what he's made. This is beautiful. The heavens are declaring the glory of God and the earth is proclaiming his handiwork. A pastor that I respected one time told me, he's like, man, when I hear Carlos Santana, I praise the Lord. And I'm like, Hey, that's right, because the devil didn't invent musical notes, and he didn't invent our ears. He didn't invent any of that. It's just using the good things that God has made. That's cool. That's on one sense. But I'm not saying that what happens in church should be like that, because this is a sanctuary. It's a holy place for holy people, and these are spiritual sacrifices, and when spiritual sacrifices, those, those sacrifices of thanksgiving, because remember we talked about it two weeks ago, there's only two kinds of sacrifice, right? There's propitiatory sacrifice, and only Jesus can make that. 
And then there's sacrifices of praise. And those are our responses to what he has done. And in these, this place of sacrifice, it has to be holy. Even if it doesn't sound great, if it's pure before the Lord, it's beautiful. And that's why I was saying, you know, sometimes I'm up here, we're praising the Lord, and I, I look over and I see Hannah, and, and I see her, and I, she pushes the wrong chord on the, on the keyboard, and she laughs a little bit, but she keeps on praising the Lord. Because she's not up here to perform, she's up here to praise Jesus. And then I said, and when Garrett tries to start a song, and then he can't remember how it starts, and then he went and did that. So that was what happened there. You know what I mean? But it's still, it's beautiful. And we're connected as the body of Christ, worshiping our Lord together. It's special. It's not a concert. But pragmatism would say, why don't you just hire Led Zeppelin to lead worship? Because those guys jam, man. Like, yeah, you know, like, worship's different. (laughs) Worship is holy. So, you know, um, the gauge of success, sadly, has become attendance, and whatever will, whatever will fill the crowd, um, that, that tends to be looked at as, like, awesome. Remember what Jesus did in John 6? He fed the multitude with five loaves and two small fish. They started following him all over the place. And you know what he did? He left them. He left them. He went up up in the mountain by himself to pray. He sent his disciples away. They hunted him down again. Then he offended them to where they, they didn't want to stick around no more. Could you imagine if all of a sudden, like, a pastor realizes that he's filling a congregation for all the wrong reasons and leaves that thriving congregation to move to, like, Nebraska or something? Because he's like, man, they got it wrong. They're focusing on comedy and all of this. They're not focusing on the Lord. Anyway, self-promotion is not Jesus' way. Self-promotion isn't good. Let God do it. Luke 14, 7 through 11 says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be um, invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. Then you being with shame to take the low or begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you were invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what does this have to do with, with our, our passage? Look at the decide, or his brothers did not believe in him. And his brothers were saying, look, you need to promote yourself. If you are who you say you are, you need to take this to the public. You need to take this to the masses. You need to get the traction and the attention. You need to do it the way that people would normally want to do it, or the people that would want to do that would do it. 
You know, they study these things. Go do that stuff. No. (laughs) My watch is talking to me. Weird. Um, Do it that way. Do it the way the politicians do it. But it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole story of Tabernacles is this path isn't going to be the kind of path that you would expect it to be. The whole story of Tabernacles is, yeah, okay, it might be a 12-day journey, but we're going to hang out here 40 years. There might be more pragmatic approach, but like, have you ever thought of how God created the other day, okay, I'm going to tell it this way. The other day, we were having our prayer meeting at my house, and Cynthia, she starts just praying, and she's like, and Lord, just protect all the honeybees that are out there. And I'm like, okay, cool, you know. Not something that I normally pray for, not like, Lord, bees, bless them. But she's praying, and I'm like, okay, cool. And then I'm at one of my property management jobs, and I come across an entire like colony of bees in a plumbago tree or a little plumbago bush. And so I, I call the Maui beekeeper and he's nearby. He comes out 20 minutes later and he's like, oh, that's a big colony. And he's like, I think there's about 20,000 bees there. I'm like, oh, cool. And then he's like, oh, I'll take it. And so he starts working on getting it. And he's like, he's like come on over here. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, you totally can. Like they have nothing to defend at this stage. They're not, they don't have a, a hive, they don't have larvae, they don't have honey. They're not, all they're trying to do is make sure that they don't lose the queen. I'm like, okay. And so I'm like right there with him with the bees. And I'm just watching, and, I, and they, have this, they have this happy hum. And I'm like, man, their hum is like relaxing. And he's like, yeah, when they, if, if that hum will change if they're agitated. But that, that's that, that content hum. I'm like, Wow. And I'm looking at them, and you know what? The, the normal thing that I do when I'm property management is I knock down wasp nests. And I was telling this guy, like, wasps, those things look aerodynamic. Like, those things look like they're built for speed and war. And, like, man, they look efficient. But these bumblebees look silly. And I'm like, like Right? They got this big old fat body and these little tiny wings, and it's like, that's not an efficient design. But next time you see a bee, just remember this. Like, when God creates, efficiency isn't his primary goal. His glory is. And I'll tell you, when I was watching those bees that look all clumsy and whatever, and yet... While, they were re- while we relocated the queen into the box, and then about 15 bees, they came out on the side of the box, and they all turned their abdomens in the same direction, and they all did this like push-up thing and started flapping their wings against, like, by their abdomen. And I'm like, why are those ones all doing that push-up? It's like, yeah, they're sending a pheromone out to the drones that are looking for a new place to hive that we're moving the queen. I'm like, what? This is amazing. Look what God's doing here. This is cool. I'm like, uh, I'm getting all emotional just standing with these bees flying all the way. I'm like, this is so beautiful. 
It's not efficient, but it gives him praise. Oh, man. Sorry, I got on a little sidetrack. But you know what? I just want to say sometimes the path that God has for you is not the most direct one. His brothers, they're saying, take the direct path. Why? Because they don't believe in him. Sometimes others have to go first. That's God's plan for you. He sent his brothers off before him. Seems like his disciples even got to go there before him. Sometimes God's plan for you is that you go alone. If that's what happened here to Jesus, his brothers got to go, his disciples got to go, but he had to go alone. Sometimes it's a 40-year wandering in the wilderness instead of a 12-day journey. But Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And that's what Tabernacles is all about. His disciples, or not his disciples, his brothers are saying, do this thing the world's way. And he says, my hour has not fully come, saying, I'm going to do this God's way. And Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh, strength to your bones. And then in closing, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. We're going to come back to 6 through 10 next week when we pick up our study again. But in closing, it says, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul brings up this other thing that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of practical sense. But it's the most amazing thing that has ever happened for mankind, ever. Now, to the Jews, they didn't like it because, you know, they wanted, they wanted a sign. And the Greeks, they didn't like it because they wanted wisdom. And so for the Jews wanting a sign, the only sign that they got was a crucified Messiah. And that's not the sign they wanted to see. They wanted to see a Messiah that would come in and overthrow the government because they didn't like that old government. They wanted a political Messiah. 
That's not what he came for. And so the idea of a suffering Messiah to them was foolish. The Greeks, they wanted wisdom. And what did they get? A suffering deity who dies on behalf of undeserving humanity. That, that sounds foolish. Doesn't make a whole lot of practical sense. But Paul says that the weakness of God is stronger than men and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And then from that, he says, now you need to see God's wisdom somewhere else as well. And where you need to see God's wisdom is in the fact that he wants to use your individual life. That might seem foolish and it might seem weak, but it's not. It's exactly what God wants to do. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. God hasn't messed up with you. Like you might have taken, it might have taken you way longer than you ever expected to get that foothold, to be able to begin a career, to be able to support yourself and your family. But that doesn't mean you're a failure. The world might want to choose to validate or, you know, um, demean you based on those things. But don't worry about them. What about the Lord? Find, you know, find your fullness in God. Find your contentment in Him. It might have taken you way longer than you expected to find your spouse. But don't worry about that. It might have taken you way longer than you ever dreamed or expected for this thing or that thing. But Tabernacle says that sometimes God wants you to take the long way around. Sometimes the world's way is the worst way. Sometimes God has a special thing in what he's doing. Even though it might not be that pragmatic approach. Even in the fact that he wants to use your life, you're like, there's better people than me. People can talk better than me, Moses. And God's like, I'm going to use you to be a spokesman to Pharaoh. I I I can't even hardly talk. I have a speech impediment. Perfect. I love the fact that your calling has nothing to do with your level of success or your popularity or your intellect. It's not your good looks. It's God. Like Psalm 8 says in Psalm 8 verse 2, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. God's wisdom chose David, a shepherd boy, to slay Goliath. He took a bunch of fishermen that loved to argue with each other and he used them to go forth and change the world. He took Paul, who was probably the most trained man concerning the Jewish religion, and sent them to the Gentiles. Hey man, can I tell you about how much I know about Judaism? Nah, we don't care. 
but I know a lot about Judaism. Uh, we still don't care, man. Well, can I tell you about Jesus? Okay. God's wisdom did that. And the reason? What's the reason why God doesn't pick the pragmatic approach? In these two verses here, 1 Corinthians 1.29 and 1 Corinthians 1.31, that no flesh should glory in his presence, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Of course the disciples, or I keep saying disciples, of course his brothers would say, do the common sense thing. Because they're not people of faith. But just that very fact that Jesus wasn't concerned with what the world expected of him. Only what the Father expected of him. I want to encourage you today to let all your insecurities go. And stop trying to compare yourself with this guy or that guy. And just focus in on what the Lord wants. And trust in him with all your heart. And follow him, even if it's the long way around. Tabernacles and timing of John chapter 7 is all, it's just speaking to us. Do things God's way.